Good morning, everyone, in-house and online. It's great to see you. It does feel like we're getting more people in-house right now. You're nicely scattered, socially distanced. But, um, and I think we're beginning to see that some people are really beginning to commit to the idea of being in the balcony forever. Amen. Is that true? Balcony crowd up there. There it goes. Yep. They're... Um, when they're singing, they're, they're spitting on top of all of us down here. I don't know if anybody knows that, but I just thought I'd mention it. Um, so this morning, this morning, we're going to look at this passage in Luke chapter 21. So let's read it together and see what it is that the Lord has for us today. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said. This poor widow has put more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, if you've got your Bibles with you and you just turn over, you'll see in chapter 20 and verse 45 what it is that's going on here. Jesus is teaching his disciples. Verse 45, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware the teachers of the law. And remember last week we looked at that and we looked at the difference between religion and relationship. And so Jesus is in a particular place at a particular time. I've just left my drink down here. I better go and get it. Hang on a second. Sally's um, sitting in a large wing-back chair down here uh, because uh, some story about having a knee, knee replacement or something requires that she sits on a very nice posh chair. She actually whispered to me earlier that she can fall asleep and no one can see her. So we'll find out whether that's true or not. So uh, Jesus is in a particular context with his disciples and particular things are happening. So we need to explain that and understand it and then we kind of get the picture of what's going on. Jesus is on the east side of the great platform that is still there to this day and it's called Temple Mount. On the east side of the platform, you have a very clear look into the Kidron Valley, across the valley towards the Mount of Olives and towards the Garden of Gethsemane, which of course was the most familiar and popular campsite for Jesus and his disciples. And so you're looking across the valley and you're seeing that portion of Jerusalem that is still there to this day. And as you look west, you look towards the temple itself, and all of the courtyards that unfold in succession from the courtyard that Jesus is in. Where Jesus is actually situated is in what is called Solomon's Portico. It's a covered area, a shaded area, beautifully constructed out of the stone of the area. And in this place, in the cool of the shadows, and with the cooling presence of all, these, of all these stones around him, Jesus is teaching his disciples. This is the location 
where in just a couple of months' time, the disciples themselves will be teaching the crowd. This is the location of the first gathering of the Christian church. And this is where Jesus is teaching on this occasion. And as he looks into the first courtyard, it's called the courtyard of the women. Beyond the courtyard of the women, there's the courtyard of the Gentiles, which is available only to male Gentiles, and then the courtyard of the men, and then the courtyard of the priests, and then the temple itself, into which only the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies on one day a year. And so there is a kind of successive triage, a a successive separation of the people. But here, at the very beginning of the progress towards the most holy place, all of the people gather in in the court of the women. And here, worship begins. Now, if you've been around uh, Jewish people at times of festival, it's a wonderful thing to experience. If you go to the Western Wall today, where uh, many Jewish people will gather to worship and pray, if it's a time of celebration, you'll notice that things begin to happen. You'll see the young men form conga lines, and they'll begin to move through the crowd, dancing and singing the psalms. The young women will put their arms onto the shoulders of the other young women and they'll begin to dance as they recite and sing the psalms. The whole crowd is moving to the rhythm of worship. And in this place, the people lift up their prayers and proclaim the scriptures and call out to God. And so right here where Jesus is teaching his disciples about being beware to be aware of and to be beware of the teachers of the law, you can see this tumult, this maelstrom of people beginning to stir into worship. And as they stir into worship and they move closer and closer to the very holy place of their faith, there are 13 trumpet-like containers These trumpet-like containers are along the sides of the worship area, and people will make their way, often dancing, to these trumpet-like receptacles, and they will cast their offering as part of their worship. Giving, offerings have always been part of worship for the people of God. As Jesus watches the different people give their different offerings, there is an old lady. We're assuming she's old, she's a widow. She's identifiably poor. She's identifiably alone. And she has really very little to give. Chris, our worship team lead, has uh, these rather delightful um, archaeological artifacts from the Holy Land. I'm going to hand them out to the young people out here, and you can look at them and then pass them on. These are called mites. And um, just, just pass them around and let people have a look at them. And they're tiny little pieces of copper that 
that the woman is putting into this great trumpet-shaped offering basket. She has nothing to offer, but what she has, she gives. Now, this is consistent with the way in which offerings and tithes are understood within all of the history of the people of God. In the Old Covenant, the expectation and the legal requirement of the people of God was that they would bring tithes and offerings. A tithe is a 10% portion of your income, and an offering over and above the 10% is an offering in relation to something for which you're thankful for and that God has done. And so there are tithes and offerings. And of course, in the New Testament, there's no way that you can support the understanding of a legal requirement upon the followers of Jesus to tithe. But there is a full expectation that we as the people of God in the new covenant in the blood of Jesus are people who have even more to celebrate, even more to recognize because our salvation is secure because it's secured in the once and for all offering of the life of Jesus. So you can't argue and There may be some who disagree with this, of course, but you can't argue for the legal requirement of a tithe in the New Testament church. But the interesting thing is this. The tithe came before the law. And the tithe has something attached to it that is outside of the law. And the thing that's attached to it is a promise. The tithe was first mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham is involved in a conflict with various different warlords in the, in the region. They're called kings. <coughs> and this, um, this campaign that, that Abraham is, uh, is involved in is in support of the king of Salem, the location that will be Jerusalem. And there's various kings on various different sides. And um, he's not too keen on some of the people that he's allied with, but he knows the cause is just. And so he, he deals with his kind of discomfort about some of, his, some of his allies, like the king of Sodom, for instance. He's, he's not particularly excited about being an ally of this guy. But, but they get on with the, um, the, the campaign and they win the battle. And then at the end of chapter 14, you can go and read this anytime you like in, in Genesis chapter 14. There is this marvelous exchange between the king of Salem, who is also a priest of the living God, the priest of the Lord himself. And there is a covenant exchange between the two that indicates that the two are now one in identity. Melchizedek takes bread and wine and offers them to Abraham. And Abraham takes a tenth of all that he owns and gives it to Melchizedek. As a priest, 
Melchizedek is offering the blessing of the common meal that indicates that they are now of a common identity. And Abraham, not a priest, but a man of substantial wealth, gives a portion of his livelihood to his new covenant brother to indicate that they are one. And so the tithe is not to do with legalistic requirement. The tithe is written into the very covenant exchange that recognizes that we are one with our covenant brother or sister. I became a Christian at 16. Nobody told me about any of the things that people are supposed to do. And I was shocked to discover that nobody tithed. Because from the day I was saved by God, by reading the scriptures all by myself, I tithed and have done ever since. It's never been a question in my mind as to whether this is a good or a bad idea. It seems like the only thing that a covenant friend would do, because what we're saying is simply this. You gave me everything, and I'm indicating that I'm giving everything of myself back to you, and I'm doing it in this symbol. Now, of course, the law in the next book of the Bible, in Leviticus and Exodus, and then Leviticus and, uh, and other books, begins to unfold the requirements that are placed upon the, the people of God. They are, they are all fulfilled in the person of Jesus, and they are not requirements for the New Testament church. But at the very end of the Old Testament, in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and in chapter 3, it says this, If you will bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, I will open the floodgates of heaven and remove the devourer from your life. And that promise stands forever. It's not conditioned by the Old or the New Testament. It's not conditioned by legalistic requirement. It's simply a promise of God. I've met people on my travels around the world who are not Christians, who have read that promise and even though they're not believers, they have tithed from their business income and they tell everybody to do it. Because the promise holds sure for everyone. Because it's not dependent upon us, it's dependent upon God. So there are tithes and there are offerings. Offerings were <clears throat> things that were given in response to particular things that God was doing. And so we're grateful that God has removed the plague from us. We're grateful that God has given us a good harvest. We're grateful that God has... It's an attitude of gratitude. And where does this begin? Well, it begins with Abraham again, chapter 22. He's been waiting for a son his whole life. He, he finagles and tries to come up with a son himself called Ishmael. But the son of promise is finally given to him through Sarah. This miracle of, of God to these old people. And then God says, give me him. And Abraham walks with Isaac alone to a mountain 
very, very close to the city of Salem where his friend Melchizedek lives. And there he builds an altar and ties his son's hands and feet and places him on the altar. And here, for the first time in ancient literature, slow motion is introduced into the narrative. It's an amazing thing. All of that slow-mo that you see in, in your movies and your screen time, and it all goes back to the story of Abraham and Isaac. Because you've skipped over days, you've skipped over events, now you have the altar and there's the boy on the altar. And as the narrative unfolds, this is how it goes. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife and raised the knife. And everybody who's hearing this for the first time is thinking, what is he going to do? And the Lord calls out, stop, Abraham, now I know. And he looks and there is a ram caught in the thicket and he offers the ram, having told his son that the Lord, of course, will provide the lamb. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us that Abraham, of course, believed that even if he did offer his son, his son would be raised from the dead. And so that's the basis of our offering. And that's what's going on in this maelstrom of people as Jesus looks out onto the, onto the court of women. And all of the people are coming into the presence of the Lord. And they're coming with songs. And they're coming with thanksgiving. And they're giving their offerings. And it's in the context of discipleship. Because Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's teaching his disciples about the nature of religion and its threat to their faith. And he's teaching them about what it is to understand their life given in surrender to God in complete and utter abandon like the widow who gives her offering. It's a discipleship issue at the very heart of what it is that Jesus wants to teach. Jesus talks about money all the time. Now, you know, some people have said that they're going to leave the church if I start talking about money. We'll, we'll get on to that in a minute. It would have been really complicated for a person like that to be around Jesus. Because he talks about money all the time. He talks about money because he's teaching about money like he is right here with the widow. He, he does a direct message about money. Sometimes he uses money as a metaphor like in the parable of the talents. There's a large sum of money that's given to a particular person that is a metaphor of God's investment into our lives. Sometimes he uses a miracle, coins in a fish's mouth to show that God will take care of us the multiplication of bread and fish so that, so, that the, so that the multitude is fed. Jesus is using money 
and provision and resources as one of the underpinning pictures of what it means to be a follower of his. And why is that? Why is it that Jesus is so interested in money? Some people, some commentators have looked at this and they've said, do you know, faith is mentioned 50 times and money is referred to 500 times. Why is that? Well, look with me at Luke chapter 16. Because it's tremendously important this morning, before we go any further into what it is that God wants for us as individuals, that we understand that Jesus has a particular thing that he wants to do in our life to release us into freedom. This is not to tie us up. This is to liberate us. And here we are. Here is the reason why Jesus talks about money all the time. Verse 13 of Luke 16. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now Jesus, of course, is our discipler. He is our master. He's here as God's representative here on earth to disciple us in the ways of God so that we walk with God daily. There's nobody that's going to disagree with that, even if you don't believe in Jesus. That's what he's doing, yeah? He's our discipler. There is only one. There's only one competing discipler in our lives, says Jesus, that he's prepared to even acknowledge. There's only one competing master in our life that he's prepared to indicate. There's only one other master that we can serve that Jesus identifies. And it's money. Don't you find that amazing? You can be discipled by Jesus or you can be discipled by money. Now, You know, Jesus is amazingly insightful, incredibly capable, and so I'm assuming that if he's saying this, this is definitive. This defines our life. And so for a person not to talk about money in my position, where my task is to make disciples, would be flagrant negligence. And for a disciple not to talk about money to a new disciple is is cavalier at the minimum and negligent at worst. Because there is an alternative discipler and it's called money. And unless you can identify the, the, the alternative, you can't You can't cleave to the reality. There is a reality and there's an alternative reality. And unless you can see the alternative reality, you won't get hold of the real thing. 
So Jesus is talking about money all the time because he doesn't want them to be discipled by it. And he uses a personification of money. It's not here in the text particularly well, but in the older text it is. Some of you got the, the King James Version. The word is mammon. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And mammon is the personification of money so that we think of money as a person who is seeking to extract from our lives our allegiance. So what does it look like? Money. Mammon. How does money disciple us? Well, money disciples us like this. It offers us control. It offers us control. Now, in offering us control, of course, it's exercising control. So, hello, can we have the whiteboard up, please? Because it's great for me, but it's not great for anybody else. Have we got it? All good up there? Yeah, plugged in. Shall I plug it in again? How about that? Do that. Come down here and have a go. Yeah? I don't know, guys. What is the... Working? No. Okay, um, they'll sort it out at some point. I've no idea. Um, don't, don't ask me questions like that. That's like way too complicated. So I'm going to write it down, and if they get it worked out, and come down here and fiddle with the stuff down here if you want to, guys. So mammon, money, it offers control. Now, about 50% of the adverts that you see on television are about money, one way or another, aren't they? And generally, what they're doing is offering control. Control over circumstance. You know, they use humor to kind of get past our defenses. They use all kinds of clever techniques to, to get us to think about circumstances that are out of our control. Car accidents, natural disasters, housing issues, problems with your plumbing, whatever. And what the money discipleship does is to offer control in that circumstance. But of course, in offering control over that circumstance, money is now setting the agenda and defining the way that we think. Because now money is the way in which we are rescued from difficulty. Money is now the means by which we are secure in our future. Money is now the means by which we're healthy and happy in our retirement. It's money. And so in offering us control, it's beginning to take control. And the control is based on fear. Okay, so you've got a discipler who's very, very effective, so effective that he is the only competitor to Jesus that Jesus is prepared to identify. Money, offering control, 
and the control is built upon a generalized experience of fear. Everybody's with me, yeah? Jesus, what does Jesus offer? Well, we looked at this a little bit yesterday. Come on, Chris, have a go. It might be that something missing somewhere. What Jesus offers is not control, but freedom. Freedom from the effects of circumstance. Jesus offers freedom from the overbearing, overshadowing of those circumstances in our life because he's saying, I'm in charge of your life, I'm in charge of the circumstances, and I'm able, I'm able to rescue, I'm able to comfort, I'm able to heal, I'm able to do whatever is needed, whatever you need in your life, I am able to supply it. In fact, unless you can get to the point of recognizing that your life is in the hands of God and that all provision comes from him, you'll never be free. You'll never be free because you'll always want some way to mitigate the fear that that uncontrolled, unforeseen circumstances will create. It always produces fear. And how do you get rid of the fear? Fear is not easily removed. The Bible gives us a very clear antidote to fear and it is perfect love casts out fear. The love of God casts out fear. And what does that mean? It means that we know that he's for us and not against us. We know that he wants us and doesn't dislike us. He's wanting to help us. He's wanting to find ways to serve us because we can see that in the life of Jesus. His unbridled, overwhelming love for us seen in the person of Jesus and all that he gave us. And it liberates our hearts from the need to control. You don't need to control anymore because God's in control. So control. Hang on, we've got a whiteboard coming up. Go low tech, that's what we need. Is there a pen with it? Praise the Lord, it's even better. So, Money, money offers a discipleship of control. Everybody say control. Well, when I said everybody, what I really meant was not four people over here in this pew. Okay? So money offers control. Everyone say control. And control, control mitigates fear. Everyone say fear. That's dead. So money. There you go. Control and fear. Jesus. Freedom. Freedom from the need to control because he is, of course, in control. And instead of fear, of course, it's based 
on faith. Now you choose today which disciple you want. Jesus says there are two alternatives. There's money and there's Jesus. Now it may be that you're sitting here and thinking, I've been a disciple of Jesus all these years and yet I still seek to control the people around me. I've been a disciple all these years and I, I still have these lurking fears that I, that I want to gain control over. Of course. Because there are these competing voices seeking, seeking entrance into our life so as to lead us in the direction that they're going. One is Jesus, the other is mammon, money. And make no mistake, there is no other thing that is identified by Jesus as a competing voice in our life like money. So not to speak about money in church is flagrant negligence. Now why is it then that we've got to this place where people are so kind of upset about conversation about money in church? Well, because Christian leaders and pastors and priests have used a conversation about money to manipulate people. They've used it to manipulate people. They've used it to get people to support and supply their ministry. And rather than the pastors and the priests trusting God for what it is that he's going to do, they have twisted the arm of people using emotionally charged tactics to get people to do what they want them to do. And that's not something that's up for debate. Everybody knows that. Happens all the time. Every, every day you turn on the TV, it's terrible. It's a horrible thing. But because a horrible thing is happening, doesn't mean that you never say anything about it again. Now when this church was founded, and I've looked into the foundations of the church, of course, it was founded in the upsurge of a particular movement within the American church. And that movement was called the Seeker Movement. And that Seeker Movement was attempting to address the spiritual needs of people who had stopped going to church, who no longer identified themselves as Christians, and who wanted to be separate. Even though they may believe in God, they wanted to be separate from the institution of the church because they didn't trust it. They were seeking God, but they weren't seeking the church. And so that movement of, of seeker sensitivity was part of the foundational movement that this church was part of. And the way that it addressed money was simply this. We're not going to take offerings during worship. And we're not going to talk about money in church. Because we're not going to continue to invest in this terrible narrative of manipulation and emotional control. Now, I completely understand that. I think it's got a great deal of authenticity, and I fully understand the heart and the motive behind it. The church that began that movement and was the leading light of that movement, just up the road here in Chicago, was called Willow Creek. It still is called Willow Creek. 
Many, many thousands of people have been brought into the kingdom through their ministry. It's a marvelous ministry that now has, has touched the world. International expressions of the ministry of, of Willow Creek uh, continue all around the world to this day. It's marvelous. But I've worked with some of the leaders of Willow Creek. And they began to indicate to me that they were concerned about the level of discipleship in their congregation. And they talked to me and they talked to other people about, what are we, what are we supposed to do about this? And I said, well, what are you doing about it? They said, well, we're going to do a survey and we're going we're to look at the survey and we're going to try to work out what's going on in the congregation. And they did that survey and to their, and to their great praise, I think, they, they published that survey. It's called the Reveal Survey, and you can go online and find it. And this is what they found. They found that they were great at gathering people, but terrible at discipling them. Terrible. Not just, not just kind of average. Terrible. But you see, if you never talk about the alternative discipler, you are going to be terrible, aren't you? Hello? We on? If you never talk about the alternative discipler, of course you're going to be terrible at discipleship. Now, I hope nobody's offended by this. But it's enormously important that as committed disciples of Jesus, we look at the words of Jesus and seek to understand them. And Jesus says, you can be discipled by money or me. Which one do you want? Which one do you want? Of course we have to identify the alternative. Of course we have to identify the reality. But if we never mention the alternative, we're left in this morass, this, this, this malaise of never fully understanding what it is that Jesus is saying about a fundamental part of our life, which is this. Our hands are only filled by the things that God puts there. Our life is only sustained by the one who made us and redeems us. It is only God who can provide for us and no one else. You cannot provide for yourself with all of the control that you try. Because money is a liar. It's a liar. I know rich people, I mean really rich people, who get sick and ask me to pray for them. Don't you think that's funny? They've got the best health insurance you could possibly ever imagine. People who have followed their discipling master of money. But money's lied to them. Because money can't help them. 
when they need God. So, hear me again. This is Jesus, this isn't me. This is the text. The text clearly indicates that giving of tithes and offerings always takes place within the people of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament, always takes place in the, in the location of public worship. Two months, two months after the events that Jesus is observing and pointing out to his disciples, only two months later, the disciples themselves will be meeting in Solomon's portico, teaching the crowds and healing the sick. And people will be bringing their offering and laying them at the feet of the apostles right in this location. They're not going to be putting their offerings into the trumpet collections. They're going to be putting them at the feet of the apostles for the distribution in the church to the needy, to the widows, and to those in want. It's still going to be in worship that offering and tithes are brought. It's in worship. And some say, well, what does it mean then when, when Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what you're right? I mean, if you're walking up and putting something, surely your left hand knows that you're doing that. Because it's going up there with you. But of course, that's because we, you know, you know, we're so ill-informed about money that we, that we quote passages in a way that reveals our lack of, our lack of information. That passage in, in Matthew 6 where, he, where Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. He's saying, when you give to the needy, not when you bring your tithe and your offering. He knows that that's in public worship, but when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what the right hand's doing. In other words, don't do it in public. That's a private thing between you and God. But in worship, of course, it's public. And you've got to take both hands with you. So worship is the context of our offering. And our offering is either a tithe or an offering. And our offering is an indication that we're being discipled by Jesus and not by money. And finally, finally, if we go back to our passage there is something tremendously important about what it is that Jesus offers us today. Let's just look at this together. Verse four, all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. You see, what Jesus is saying is not that we put all that we have in the offering plate on every occasion, but that our offering indicates that we're not giving our money, we're giving ourselves. It's us that God wants. He doesn't need our money, but he knows how close that wallet is to our heart. He knows how connected our money is to our very substance, to our very identity. 
and he knows that if we will surrender our lives and give that surrender in the symbol of the alternative voice that's seeking to draw us away from discipleship to Jesus, he knows that the significance of that will ring in our hearts and down through the ages into eternity. It's that important. So, I've done my job today. I've not been remiss. I've not dodged the bullet. I sought to bring you a discipling word. Jesus wants you to follow him. He doesn't want you to follow money. And he wants you to bring your offerings, your tithes. And God says, put me to the test. Put me to the test. It's the only place in the Bible where he says you can do this. He says, put me to the test. If you bring your tithe into the storehouse, I will open the floodgates of heaven and I will stop the devourer. Put him to the test. God wants us to make our offering in worship and as we make our offering, we make the offering of ourselves in the symbol of the gift that we give. Do we get it? Okay. As I was praying, I felt as though this was an important word for some folks. And so um, what we're going to do is we're going to have a little bit of a prayer time right now. And I'm going to open up my computer here. And I'm going to open up the prayer room so that I can invite both those of you who are in-house and online into a prayer room, which will be a common experience for each of us. We've got prayer team here, ready to pray. And we've got prayer team online in the Zoom prayer room, which I'm opening right now. Chad will be there in the prayer room. In fact, he's just come in. Hello, Chad. So, here's the thing. Let me just um, put myself on mute here. So, here's the thing. There is an alternative voice. There is an alternative discipler. And the alternative voice is looking for control in your life. And the control is built on fear. Jesus wants to give you freedom. And freedom leads to faith. As I, as I was praying, this is what I saw. I saw some people in chains who need the chains breaking. So if you're, if you're online, then, then join in in the Zoom room. Come and join the, the Zoom room. I just turned that down so they don't hear all over again. So there are some people in chains. And what, what, I would, what, what I'd ask you to do is if you're online, go on the website and it's got a Zoom link. Just click on there and just join us. 
If you're, if you're on Facebook Live, just click the Zoom link and come and join us. And if you're in the building right now, if this is you, just listen to what it is that I saw. I saw some people in chains, and they're chained to fear, and they live in the knowledge of being controlled and seeking to take control. And God wants to break those chains from you today. And then I saw another type of person in the room. I saw another type of person in the congregation, online and in-house. And it was a person who was carrying chains that had been broken. The chains are broken, but you're still burdened by the chains. You're not free of them. You're a disciple of Jesus. You've known Jesus for years. But somehow, you have sought to carry the weight and the burden of the old discipler. And maybe you've rebranded it as some kind of Christian stewardship or something. I don't know. But you're carrying. You're carrying these chains and it's burdening you. Now I want to pray with you and so do the prayer team. And so I'm going to ask you now to come into the Zoom room. Bless you, those of you who are already joining us in the Zoom room. I want you to come into the Zoom room and be free of those chains, whether they're chains that are attached to you or whether they're chains that you carry. And if you're in the room right now and you need this, and honestly, you know it's true, you need this. In the very act of moving, coming over to here where the prayer team will be, in the very act of moving, those chains will begin to fall. So I'm asking you to do that now. I'm not gonna do any emotional thing. I'm asking you just to start moving now. We're gonna pray with you over here so that we can do the social distance thing and come and join us over here for prayer. I'll wait for a few moments whilst you consider doing that together.